Hello and welcome to Homestead Hens and Honey, a beekeeping, chicken keeping and general homesteading podcast. I'm your host Gemma and this is episode two entitled Why Bees? An introduction to the European honeybee. Now before I get started I would just like to say a big thank you to everyone who listened to episode one, in particular to my very good friends Steph, Shelley and Jana for being my first downloaders and first listeners to the podcast and for sending me such positive feedback. I really appreciate you guys, thank you so much. Now today, before I get into the sort of nitty gritty of what the European honeybee is and what it does for us, I'd like to talk about what led me to beekeeping. And before I get into that, um, please bear with me today. Um, I'm considering calling this the Jangling Dog Tag podcast because no matter what I do, my dogs are always in the background jangling their tags. I, if I close the door on them, they scream, so I need to let them know that I'm alive, um, and I am trying to get their tag silent, so please bear with me for that and any other kind of weird sounds you hear in the background. Um, I'm also in full ragweed allergy pain today, so if I sound a little congested, um, blame my decongestants for not doing their job. So in terms of bees, what makes someone wake up one day and think, you know what would really benefit my life? I could have boxes of stinging venomous insects on my property. That sounds great. Okay, well, I actually don't know the precise moment I got interested in bees. Um, The nearest I can pinpoint it to is about nine years ago, my husband and I lived in Providence, Rhode Island. He was doing his PhD at Brown University. And I remember seeing this beautiful book on a, on a website somewhere. It was called the Honey... No, I'm sorry. It was called the Beekeeper's Bible. And it's this huge book. It's one of those kind of books that you could brain someone with. And it's a beautiful hardcover. It had wonderful cover art. It was just absolutely stunning. And for some reason, I thought, yes, I need that book. So I put it on my Amazon wish list. And the same year my husband bought the book for me, I was absolutely thrilled. I put it in pride of place on my favourite bookshelf, on my favourite bookcase, because yes, I do have a favourite bookcase and it has a favourite shelf on it. And then I never read it. And the honest truth is I still haven't read that book. It is on my list of B books to read, but it's just sort of sat unused for almost nine years. So what led me to it? I honestly don't know. I do know that around that time I became very interested in gardening. We didn't have much of a garden back then, just sort of enough to let our greyhound Peyton out to do his business. So I decided to try container gardening, which is, you know, exactly what it sounds like, growing plants in containers, which has a number of advantages. You know, they're good for moving around from a sunny spot to a shady spot. Um, You can raise them up. So if you have any mobility issues, you know, they're easy to weed or harvest from. And the benefit for me was that the soil quality at this rental place was really poor. And um, we didn't have a lot of money and we had a very strict budget and I wasn't going to invest in improving the soil quality, knowing that we were only going to be there for, uh, you know, a few years until my husband completed his PhD. So I got into container gardening and I really enjoyed growing different kinds of tomatoes, bell peppers, all kinds of herbs. 
it was very rewarding for me and it was something that I enjoyed doing. So when we moved to Georgia for my husband's postdoctorate position, and we again had a yard, um, I decided I would I would try container gardening again. Now, this is actually when I stopped gardening because I just couldn't keep anything alive. The humidity was just so off the charts, particularly for someone like myself who you know doesn't have experience with it, that all the plants that I put in would get mildew, they would rot. I couldn't seem to find a balance to stop them from being destroyed by the heat and the humidity. And um, anything that actually didn't mold, I couldn't seem to keep up with their water requirements either. I don't know if my containers were too small or if it was just me not going out enough, even though I was out there morning and evening. But I just ended up giving up on gardening while we lived in Georgia and I focused on other things. Around this time, I decided that I would have chickens. And again, I have no idea where this thought came from. I'm not sure if I saw a book, if I saw some chickens. I don't have a clear memory. I just remember that... It was there in Georgia where I decided, yeah, chickens are going to be something that I get one day. And this is when I started acquiring my books on chickens, you know, picking them up wherever I could. I love shopping at thrift stores and I really enjoy secondhand books. So it was quite easy and affordable to get quite the library of um, chicken guides going, which came in handy when we moved to Ohio and I found a chicken in a parking lot, which you'll know all about if you listen to my last episode. And it's here in Ohio where you know things really came together. So we moved here because my husband um, is a tenure track professor. And um, this is the dream. You know, this is why we bounced around. This is what we have been working towards. Um, and I, you know, and I do say we because I totally acknowledge that you know my husband's the smarty pants. He's done all of the hard work, and you know he's absolutely remarkable and I'm, I'm so proud of him and just his dedication that he's had from day one to do what he does and it's it's not an easy field you know he's a biologist it's there's a huge amount of stuff that he does that I can't even imagine getting through <laughs> least of all data analysis which seems like one of the most boring things on the planet but yeah I say we because you know we've had periods of time where I worked full-time to support his studies and to let us live a life that was you know a little bit more comfortable and um, I've always you know tried to assist as much as I can with helping him get to this place this tenure track position and and we're a unit I think if you are a um, a happily married couple you know what I mean when I say that you find a goal together and you both work towards it and as time went by I really was struggling with the moves and I think the reason why is when I moved from England I didn't expect the culture shock that I was faced with because I had been to America a lot. I did a year at the University of California Santa Barbara when I was in school when I was at university for my bachelor's degree. Obviously when my husband and I were dating I would spend you know at least three months every year with him. He was in Cincinnati at the time and um, you know I had other friends out here so I had traveled a little bit. I had had um, holidays here with my family growing up. In fact Florida was one of our favorite destinations when I was little. But you don't understand the change in culture until you find yourself immersed in it and I was homesick for a while 
And then it felt like every time we were putting roots down somewhere, we would move again. And it's hard to leave your friends behind. It's hard to leave familiar things behind. And particularly moving from Rhode Island, which is, you know, a northern state, to Georgia, which is southern. It wasn't just a shift in weather and how the seasons are. It's a it's a true shift in culture. Um, in Rhode Island, I met a lot of people from all over the world just walking around in my small area. You know, it's a very small state. And um, I used to walk almost everywhere where we lived. And I would, you know, bump into people from all over the world and we'd have a chat and it was very friendly. And then in Georgia, I mainly met people from Georgia or from southern states. And that's the kind of culture where you meet someone. And one of the first questions is, which church do you go to? Which is a very different cultural phenomena for me. And I was lucky I made wonderful friends in um, both Rhode Island and Georgia. And it was very hard to leave them behind. So when we moved here to Ohio, one of my dreams was to have our own house. And of course, we rented the first year because you need to take that time to learn about neighborhoods, to get a feel for the market, to really decide where do you feel comfortable. And I was delighted when, after about a year, my husband said, you know, now is the time. You, Why don't you start looking? And um, I'm lucky because you know, my husband trusts me. He told me the kind of things that he was looking for and he was happy to just kind of let me loose on house hunting, which I enjoyed a lot more than I anticipated. And there were only really a handful of things that we were looking for. And part of this is because I've never been someone who dreams about my perfect anything. You know, I I know it's normal for girls to dream about their perfect wedding for instance where I was lost when I was engaged and suddenly realized that I had no idea what should be involved in a wedding or what it should look like and it was the same for like my first apartment or what university life should look like besides studying and so I didn't really know what's my dream house what what was I looking for so my husband and I sat down and we all agreed on you know some key points And one of the points was it needed to be big enough that we could fit in all our animals. Because between my husband and I, we have currently at this time, I believe, over 30 different reptiles. Um, I actually breed a kind of lizard called pink tongue skinks. um, And I currently still have some babies from the litter that was born in May. And my husband works on a breeding project of jungle carpet pythons, which are a beautiful black and yellow snake originally from Australia. And then we have our own pets as well. Um, I have blue tongue skinks, which is a larger, heavier bodied lizard. Mine are from uh, more of an Indonesian region, whereas the pink tongue skinks are from Australia originally. And I have a couple of gecko species. Um, My husband has a bull python who's over 20 years old and was the first reptile that he ever rescued. Um, We actually have a baby snake right now, which was sent by accident um, in an order my husband placed for work. And so now we have this sweet little water snake. Um, We just have a lot of animals here at the house. And this means that we need a certain size property for the enclosures because we're not some of those reptile people who like the bare minimum. 
you know, some people take the cage recommendations and they see the minimum size and they decide that, you know, that works for them. My husband and I, we like to do large enrichment enclosures. So enclosures that have things in them that enrich the animal's life. If we can make them bioactive with a soil with insects in that will eat any of the, um, you know, feces and dirt, and then live plants that help with the uh, the air quality, um, fresh water, we mist regularly. We want things they can burrow in, things they can hide in. Are they arboreal? Then we want to put in a lot of different things they can climb on. You know, we love that. And in fact, my husband, on top of all the other things that he does as a very busy professor, he actually builds very large, absolutely beautiful enclosures for his snakes and he built some for um, my blue tongue skinks and it's something that he's always working on he's always thinking how can I improve this design how can I improve this reptile's quality of life and I love that so we knew we wanted space for the animals and to showcase the animals because we're proud of them we like people to see the beautiful unusual species that we keep and also the lovely enclosures that we set up we want them to be visually appealing another thing was we needed a large space for our dogs um, when we were looking for a house we had Kaylee our greyhound and Chappie my little whippet we now have Kaylee Chappie and Luna who we adopted, she's also a whippet, we adopted her after we bought the house. And at the time of this recording, I also have a foster dog. Um, I'm taking care of him as part of my work as a volunteer for Whippet Rescue and Placement. He is a 10 year old Whippet who had to be given to the rescue due to unforeseen circumstances. And I'm in the process of finding him a home. So we're dog mad, as you can tell. And we knew we wanted a big space for the dogs to run and to play and just enjoy being outside. And I wanted land for chickens and bees and all kinds of gardening. So ideally, I was looking for a minimum of five acres. Well, as it turned out, we ended up with just under 1.5 acres, which is quite a difference. And the honest truth is that I think this is a good size for us because as much as I would like to be further away from my neighbors so I could justify having a noisy rooster, for instance, I work very hard to maintain what we have. And I think at this time, having more than this would be very difficult for me to manage. Although I am dreaming, honestly, of one day having a small hobby farm with 10 or 15 acres that I can just fill with animals. And I would honestly, I would love to rescue farm animals. That would be a big dream for me. And I've always dreamt as well of um, rescuing giant tortoises. So who knows, watch this space that might one day come to pass. So we ended up where we are. I love this property so much. I love our land. I love the house. I'm really proud of it. When we bought it, it didn't have a fence. So one of the first things we did was put up a huge fence. Not long after we got this property, I found myself a chicken owner. And if you followed episode one, you know that my um, pathway into chicken keeping was a little different. Well, once I had my flock, um, the idea of beekeeping came up again. And I think some of what brought it back to me was, you know, there's been a lot of press about the decline of the honeybee. 
and also the decline of native pollinators across the globe and how this might affect us because we need pollinators for a number of foods that we consume. And so I started looking at our property and wondering what was it doing to serve native pollinators? What flowers did I have here that were best for them? Were there any plants that were invasive and dangerous to the local ecosystem? Did I need more of certain kinds of flowers and less of something else, such as my huge lawn that I am currently working to get rid of? So I did what I always do, which is turn to books. And I started at my library quickly filled my Amazon wish list with all kinds of books on beekeeping. And the first Christmas that we spent in our new home, my in-laws bought me a complete hive kit. So it's a 10 frame deep super or brood box with the frames inside, a bottom board, a cover, and they also got me a smoker and a veil. And that same Christmas, other family members had generously bought me books on the subject. And then I found out that there was a beginning beekeeper course being held at a restaurant not five minutes from my house. So it really felt like everything was coming together. It was the spring of 2018 that I was given the opportunity to purchase my first bees. And I desperately wanted to do so. But when I looked objectively at what I had on my plate, I realized that I didn't have time. Um, at the time, I was working on a number of house improvements. I was getting the garden started. I was taking um, American Sign Language classes at my university. I also volunteered for a number of organizations, including my local zoo, and I was taking care of you know, our own pets. And so when I really considered it, I just, I felt like I didn't have the time and dedication to put into beekeeping. And part of the reason why is you know, there's a very steep learning curve. It's not just a case of getting bees, putting them in a hive and leaving them to it. There's a lot more. And I'm going to, you know, get into that over the course of these podcast episodes, you know, exactly how much time and work is needed to effectively keep honeybees. So I decided, as much as it pained me to be responsible, that 2018 was not going to be the year that I brought bees home. What I decided to do instead is I would spend that year taking classes, getting to know local beekeepers, reading everything I could, and joining local clubs. And then finally, in May of this year, 2019, I was ready and I got my bees. So now that you know sort of how I became interested and my pathway to beekeeping, I would like to talk about some beekeeping basics. Many people don't realize that there are actually a lot of different kinds of bees. There are over 4,000 species of native bees in North America alone, and they function as essential pollinators for a wide variety of plant species. Although the honeybee is an important pollinator, they're not native to the US, and one could argue that they're not our most critical of pollinators. So what makes a honeybee so special that people voluntarily keep these stinging insects in their gardens? Well, the obvious answer is honey production. This is clearly what led humans to the honeybee so many years ago. You know, there's um, 
cave drawings of uh, people approaching beehives. There is um, all kinds of information that you can find about our relationship with bees through Egyptian hieroglyphics. I mean, this is clearly an insect that we have a very long history with, and it's absolutely fascinating. But you might be surprised to learn that other bee species also produce honey. The difference, however, is that the honeybee is unique in the fact that it has very large colonies, and so it produces a large amount of honey. In contrast, something like, say, a bumblebee, they don't live in large colonies, and so they only produce the very small amounts of honey needed to feed themselves and their brood. The honeybee that we keep is the Western, or sometimes called the European honeybee. It's a member of the order Hymenoptera, which includes ants, wasps, and sawflies. And the honeybee's Latin name is Apis mellifera. Apis means bee, and mellifera means honeybearing, so literally the honeybearing bee. There are six other species in the genus Apis, but I'm only going to be talking about the European honeybee, as this is the one that is kept by beekeepers all over the world. So this remarkable bee was one of the very first domesticated insects. They are a source of delicious honey, an important pollinator, and a key model organism in scientific studies, especially those focused on social evolution and the toxicity of pesticides. As you probably already know, honeybees live in large colonies, made up of thousands of worker bees and a single queen. Interestingly, if you look into old English literature on the keeping of bees, it was believed that um, it was a king bee because, um, as you might be aware, royal family lineage in um, history was always uh, patriarchal. It was always through the male line. And so I think the assumption was that the leader of the bees therefore had to be a man or a male in this case, which I find hilarious. So it was actually quite a discovery when um, people learned that it's, um, it's the queen who is the centre of the hive, that honeybees are matriarchal. Now, in the wild, honeybees would live in trees, logs, other places with convenient cavities that allow them to build comb in a dark and enclosed space. As beekeepers, we kind of mimic this cavity using predominantly wooden hives that have frames in them that encourage the bees to draw wax and allow us to remove honey without damaging the colony. So there's two main types of hives available, the Langstroth and the Top Bar. There are other hives. Um, you might have seen things like the Flow Hive, which has been very popular on social media. There's a lot of very interesting videos about how they work. And a quite old design of hive is something called the Warre Hive. But I don't have any experience with either of these, and so I'm not going to be discussing them during this episode. I'd like to start talking about the Langstroth hive. This is probably the most common, and it might even be what you imagine when I talk about beehives. It was originally invented by Lorenzo Lorraine Langstroth in 1851. He was a reverend in Pennsylvania who discovered something called bee space. Now this is the ideal amount of space that allows bees to create neatly oriented comb without restricting their movement around the hive. 
Lorenzo realized that this concept of bee space allowed him to design frames that would prevent bees from attaching comb to the edges of the hive body, thus allowing him to remove honeycomb without destroying the entire comb structure, which is traditionally how it was done. It used to be that going in and taking out honey would destroy a hive. My apologies for the barking in the background just now. Um, my foster Willie is an excellent guard dog and apparently someone dared to approach the house. <laughs> so he was just letting me know that it's all fine. Um, so the Langstroth hives are made of wood, sometimes plastic, and they're basically boxes that stack vertically. These boxes or supers come in deep and medium sizes and contain either eight or 10 frames. They require a baseboard, an inner cover and a heavier top cover. Top bar hives in contrast are horizontal. They use only top bar frames with no foundation. So this is a great option for those wanting to harvest uh, a lot of natural honeycomb. One of the downsides to the frames is that as they're only attached at the very top, um, what can happen is during an inspection, if you're not careful, the comb can come loose from the frame and fall back into the hive, which would be very destructive. And sometimes this can also occur during honey extraction. So my understanding is that you need to have a little bit more care and maybe even a little more skill in order to do an inspection in a top bar hive. You also can't add any space to a top bar hive. You start with a finite amount of space for the bees to fill with comb, which is different to a Langstroth, where theoretically you could just keep adding as many boxes as you need. Um, and I've also heard that it can be hard to overwinter a top bar hive because of the way that it's structured. Um, I personally have a wooden 10 frame Langstroth that I painted and decorated. Uh, my frames have yellow foundation, which is what I prefer to black, as well as a coating of natural wax to help get the bees started on drawing out the comb. So let's say that you've chosen a hive and you wanna put bees in it. Now you need to understand how the bee colony works. So what makes up a honeybee colony? Well, we have workers, which are all female, and they make up the majority of the colony. There are also drones, the males, that function as the sperm or reproductive agents of the colony and will be found in much smaller numbers. And finally, you have the queen bee, who is the mother of the colony. So as I said, worker bees make up the majority of the hive. They're all female and are produced from fertilized eggs, making them diploid which means that they contain two sets of chromosomes, one set from the male and one set from the female. The female workers are unable to lay eggs. This is crucial. In fact, their reproductive development is suppressed by the presence of queen and brood pheromones. Only in the complete absence of these will some worker bees develop the ability to lay eggs. But because they've never been mated, all of those eggs will be unfertilized, which means they'll become drones. And I'll talk about this in just a second. So most of the bees, in fact, any bee that you see out foraging, that's gonna be a worker bee. The worker bees do all jobs within a hive. 
They start as nurse bees that care for the brood, they eventually go on to become cleaners, guard bees, and then eventually foragers. Worker bees can sting you, and they'll die as a result of doing so. The reason why is that their stinger is barbed, it gets hooked into your skin, and as the bee pulls away, her innards are dragged out, connected to the stinger, and then she dies. Um, assuming that they don't sting anything or fall victim to some kind of predator, a worker bee lives about six to seven weeks in the summer and four to six months over winter. Now the drone bee is the male and he makes up a small percentage of the colony. The drones come from unfertilized eggs, making them haploid or containing only one set of chromosomes which they get from the queen, their mother. Drones are big, adorable looking bees, and they don't do much of anything but go out and mate with virgin queens during the spring and summer. They don't have a stinger, as this organ actually makes up their reproductive system. After they successfully mate, they die. And if any drones haven't mated by the fall, when food starts to become scarce, their sisters will kick them out of the hive to die in the cold, because they're just freeloaders at that point. <laughs> Drones are easy to spot inside a hive as they're larger than their sisters with big eyes and cute blunt little tushes. They also make a much deeper hum or buzz, so I often hear them before I notice one. Um, and an interesting side note, and I just learned this the other week and I, I think it's adorable. Bee semen is pink. Um, I heard this while listening to episode 109 of Pollination, which is a really excellent podcast from the Oregon State University Extension Service. Um, they had on Dr. Shelley Hoover, and she shared this very interesting fact on the episode. I very much recommend checking it out. Now, the queen bee is the matriarch of the hive. She is the only reproductive female, and she lives about one to three years, although I have seen some people say one to five. After she emerges from her cell, she will go on a series of mating flights where she'll receive and store all the sperm that she'll ever need for the rest of her life. After successfully mating with as many as 20 to 30 males, she'll return to the hive and lay eggs until the day she dies. She will never leave again unless the hive needs to swarm, which is a form of reproduction that I will discuss a little later on. The queen is noticeably larger than other bees. She's about twice the size of a worker bee with an elongated abdomen. I actually heard someone describe them as looking a little bit like a roach, which doesn't sound very romantic and part of me wants to defend the beauty of a queen bee, but I do understand that description and that is a good thing to keep in mind when looking for a queen bee. Um, I'm gonna try and get some good pictures of the difference between a queen worker and drone up on my Instagram and on the blog, so I would definitely recommend uh, checking those out. Now the queen does have a stinger, and unlike the females who can only use it once because it will kill them, the queen can sting multiple times. Now I have never heard of a human being stung by a queen even while handling them. And actually it seems like what the queen has the stinger for is that um, if multiple virgin queens emerge from their cells at the same time, the first queen will use her stinger to kill her royal sisters because a hive only has one queen. And in the hive, the first queen out, she will kill the others and she's gonna be the survivor. 
So now you're familiar with the bees that make up a honeybee colony. And let's say you've also chosen your hive. Well, do you need anything else to get started? You do need some equipment. And um, this is what I would recommend as sort of a basic list. But obviously, I do recommend taking a class, doing your own reading and deciding what works best for you. So for equipment, I definitely recommend a hive stand, which will raise your hive off the ground. Um, I would recommend at least a foot, preferably two feet. And this will help deter predators like skunks and raccoons and even invading insects like ants. You will also need a smoker, a hive tool, which is kind of like a tiny crowbar. It has a flat end and a curved end. Some kind of feeder would be very useful for the fall and the winter when you want to feed your bees. Obviously, you need a veil. Um, if you could start as a beginner with no gloves and no jacket, but you need a veil. I do recommend getting some kind of suit or jacket and then obviously get some gloves. Now, a lot of people like heavy beekeeping gloves. I was taught to use nitrile surgical gloves. Now, you can be stung through these gloves. And yes, it hurts, but I do recommend them. One of the easiest ways to get stung is being clumsy. And the kind of heavy gloves that will stop you from feeling a stinger make you less dexterous and you're more likely to crush bees while wearing them. So my recommendation is wear surgical gloves. Being stung, as scary as it feels, that's part of beekeeping. And honestly, I have very rarely been stung while wearing these thin kind of gloves. It actually, I actually just got stung the other day while helping someone with a hive and her hive is super aggressive and that's why I got stung because those girls were finding things to sting, not because I did something that triggered the attack. And that's a crucial difference. So once again, if you are more comfortable and you want the heavy sting proof gloves, then go ahead. But at some point, Give those disposable surgical gloves a try and see how you feel. I'd also re recommend picking up a frame holder that lets you set a frame aside safely while doing an inspection. A frame grip is something I found very useful and I do recommend it to anyone who has hand or wrist weakness like I do. I have um, carpal tunnel in both wrists and sometimes I lose a lot of strength in my hands and the frame grip has been wonderful in helping me lift heavy frames. You'll also see a bee brush recommended. I've actually never used this so I can't say how useful it is but it's something I'm considering getting and experimenting with. But the most important piece of equipment after your veil is some kind of record keeping tool, be it a phone app, a google document or just a paper journal that you take out with you. So let's say you've got all your equipment together, you have chosen a hive, you've chosen somewhere on your property to set everything up, and now you're wondering, well, how do I get bees? There are three primary ways. You can purchase a package, purchase a nucleus colony, or you can capture a wild swarm. So let's start with a package. What is that? Well, it's a plastic or wooden box containing three to four pounds of bees with a caged queen and a food source that they eat during their trip. These bees are taken from many different hives. Um, they actually use something called a, um, a bee vacuum where they literally like suck up the bees from all these different hives until they get the three to four pounds. Then they take a queen that has been bred separately so she's not 
established with a particular hive and they put her in there with a cage and then there's usually a can of sugar water or sugar syrup that the bees can feed on during their trip because it can be quite long. Um, the queen needs to be caged because she's not their queen and if they just threw a queen into that box a she could be damaged during transport and b they would probably kill her. Some of the pros of getting a package is that they are cheaper than getting a nucleus colony. They can be shipped directly to your doorstep, which is extremely convenient. Uh, big stores like Tractor Supply can sell them as well, so you can go pick them up from your local store. And they're usually available much earlier in the season because they're coming from the southern states where spring you know, has sprung much sooner in the year. The disadvantage with packages is that the queen does need time to be accepted. So you need to learn how and when to safely release her. If you just let her out that first day you get the package, the chances are the bees will kill her. The bees are also very hungry from traveling. Even with the food offered to them, they are going to be hungry and you are going to need to feed, feed, feed as soon as you open that package. You're also, if it's your first year keeping, then they need to produce a huge amount of wax in order for the queen to start laying eggs as she needs the wax cells built for her to put the eggs into. Now building wax or, or producing wax, it's very energy intensive. So you wanna make sure you start these bees off well by giving them lots and lots of food. Another disadvantage is you don't know anything about the genetics of a package. They're from all different kinds of hives and the queen is bred separately. And you don't know how she was mated either. Was she well mated? Was she not? All of this sort of information is, is just not available to you. Um, you also don't know what's their disposition. Um, are they calm or are they aggressive? And that comes from the queen because she is the primary giver of the genetics. So you don't know any of that stuff. Um, also coming from the south, you don't know how winter hardy these bees will be. How are they going to fare over our cold winters? Do they have any genetics that would help them during the winter? You just don't know. Um, you might also find that you need to do an early varroa mite treatment. Varroa mites are pretty much the bane of the beekeeper's existence. Um, they can absolutely destroy colonies. It's something we need to be very mindful of. It's also something that I will eventually do an episode on because it's a huge part of uh, modern beekeeping. And so this means that you need to learn about varroa mites and you need to learn about appropriate treatment and you need to be prepared to do it the minute you get your package home. So let's say you decide that you don't want a package. Your other option is a nucleus colony or nuke. It's a small hive body containing two to five frames. In a five frame nuke, you can expect three frames of eggs and brood and two of pollen or honey, and honey I should say, with a mated and actively laying queen. Now the positives of a nuke is that the frames have already been built up, so they have a good start on comb creation. This is an accepted queen. She is the mother to all the bees in that, in that colony and she's already laying for you. You have all life stages of the bees, from the eggs, through the stages of larva, to the foragers. It's basically a ready-made hive. You just install it and you're off. Uh, this is a great way to start your colony and you're usually able to track the genetics better because these will be local bees. And local bees 
are good because they should be used to the climate. Now, the reason that I'm saying these are local bees is because one of the cons of a nucleus colony is that it cannot be shipped. You must drive out to pick it up from a beekeeper. And for some people, that could mean driving hours, and that might not be something you want to do. A nucleus colony is also more expensive. And one of the big downsides is if you use anything but a Langstroth hive, you're gonna have an issue with installation. Um, the most nucleus colonies are set up so you literally take the frames out and put them straight into a Langstroth hive. If you have a top bar or a worry hive or a flow hive, getting those frames from the nucleus colony into your hive is going to be a real hardship and will require additional work and education. Now your final option is catching a swarm. And this is where you use a swarm trap to catch feral honeybee colonies. You'll need some kind of box with some frames in it and a law. You can buy chemical laws, which are supposed to mimic bee pheromones, or you can put in a piece of old drawn out honeybee comb and a couple of drops of lemongrass oil. Um, I've been told that a deep Langstroth box is a good size for luring a swarm. Now the benefits of this is free bees, <laughs> which is always good. We love free bees. Um, and they might be from an overwintered hive, which means they're good survivors. The disadvantages are that you don't know how old that queen is. Something to keep in mind is that it is always an established queen that leaves with a swarm. So she could be anywhere from one to four years old. And the older a queen gets, the less uh, productive she is with egg laying because she's be beginning to run out of her sperm supplies. Another disadvantage is unknown genetics. I mean, you know nothing about these bees. Did they swarm from a local beekeeper? Are they from a wild population that's been out there for years and years? You don't know. Another thing to keep in mind is that they could have very high mite levels. When a hive swarms, it is in many ways a form of reproduction. The hive has reached such a large amount of um, populace that they are running out of space and this will trigger a swarming behavior. What happens is the established queen um, begins to build up her flight muscles and she leaves with about half of the colony. They, they basically stuff their little faces full of as much honey as they can and 50% of the colony and that queen, they leave. And the remaining 50% of the colony stays behind with the eggs and the brood and they will raise one of those eggs to be a new queen. This is why I'm saying that it's always an established queen that you will catch with a swarm, it, it, not a virgin. I'm sure there are some exceptions because sometimes what happens is if varroa mite levels have reached a very high number within a colony, that colony will swarm and it's a way for them to try and deal with decreasing the mites by leaving the mites hopefully behind in the cat's brood and then hopefully starting a colony with lower mite levels. And that can be a real issue and it's something you need to look out for. But the big thing is, if you're relying on catching a swarm, you might not catch one. And if you wait too long, you'll miss your opportunity to start beekeeping because packages and nucleus colonies, they tend to sell out very, very quickly in early spring. So I don't recommend relying on swarm catching as a way to start, but it could be a fun way to add to an existing 
beekeeping practice. Maybe you buy a nucleus colony or a package for one hive, but you keep a hive on standby and try and catch a swarm. So what did I do to get started? Well, I took classes from local teachers and, and beekeepers for about a year. I collected a large amount of books. I read everything I could, including blogs, um, online communities, and also just talking to people in my area who keep bees. And then in spring of this year, I bought two five-frame nucleus colonies from a local keeper and one of my teachers. And I am glad I started this way because it's a great way to start your colony. And having bought my nucleus colony from a teacher, she is available to answer my questions. And I have had a lot of questions, a lot more than I originally anticipated. And it's just such an invaluable resource to have someone with her experience who can help. Now, picking up my nucleus colonies didn't go as I had hoped. And I'm gonna tell this story even though it's very embarrassing because it's important for beginner beekeepers to know that you shouldn't be scared off by early mistakes. So I went to get my nukes and they were so full of brood and food stores that my teacher was worried that they could be thinking about swarming because swarming is often triggered by a lack of space. So what she did before I arrived is she opened up both nuke colonies, she took out each frame and she examined them for swarm cells. And having decided that they looked good, once I arrived, she sealed up each box and we put them in the back of my SUV. We then actually went to her house for a while. I can't remember why, but I'm really glad we did. Because when we came back, I looked in my car and one of the nukes was what I call leaking bees. Like they were just slowly pouring out of one corner. So we took it back out and my teacher went to reseal it because obviously they'd found some little crevice to get out of. Now at this point, it's a beautiful sunny day. I am so excited to be getting my bees and I let my guard down. I got complacent. So I walked up to my teacher without a veil. Now what I wasn't thinking about is that these bees had just been opened up. They'd gone um, my teacher had gone frame by frame which was disturbing them and it's a hot day so they're active and then we jostled them around getting them in and out of the car and so the guard bees were not happy and as I approached my bee, uh, beekeeping teacher without a veil they came at me and I've actually never had experience with aggressive bees before and having them fly at my face like that, I just lost it. I'm squealing, I'm flailing my arms around, I'm running back and forth like a freaking idiot. It was absolutely humiliating. And on top of that, one of the girls came at me, stinger out and nailed me on the forehead. And damn, that hurt. <laughs> so my beekeeping teacher, bless her heart, she runs over, puts her veil on me. There's a bee under the veil, so I'm still squeaking. She kills the bee for me so I don't get stung again. And finally, after all this excitement, we get things sorted and we load the nuke into the car. And I'm just too scared to get in the car without my veil on. So I give my teacher back her veil, put mine on and start driving down the road. I only got about three minutes down the road before I just thought this is ridiculous. So I took the veil off and I thought, OK, I'm going to risk it. And I didn't have any issues. But of course, by the time I got home, I'm playing over my behaviour in my mind. I'm imagining just how stupid I must have looked to my teacher. And so I pulled into my driveway and promptly burst into floods of tears because sometimes that's my reaction to frustration. Well, after calling off, having a drink, talking to my husband, I 
grabbed my smoker, put my suit on, put my suit on, and um, I installed those nukes with absolutely no issues whatsoever. Even the um, even the slightly aggressive ones who were all still mad at me, they really didn't do that much of a of um, a swarm at me. They were pretty good actually to get them in and. My husband took some really great pictures and videos, which I'll post on the Instagram and on the blog because, um, I mean, they're just a wonderful memory for me. Now, because I'm a softie and a bit of a secret romantic, for my record keeping, I decided to name my queens. Um, and you don't have to do this. I've actually seen some people name the hive, like the tree hive or the oak hive. And I think that's a great way to do things as well. But I've decided to do it by naming my queens. So I called one of the queens, Bridget. Um, I named her after the Celtic goddess of spring and fertility. And the queen of the nucleus of uh, the bees that stung me, I named after Marka, who is the Celtic goddess of war and a historical avenger of women, which I thought was very, very fitting. Now, as I'm recording this, Queen Bridget is dead, and I now have Marka still, Queen Caredwin, goddess of rebirth and the dark moon, and Queen Morrigan, goddess of renewal, war and fate. And I would like to discuss how I ended up losing Bridget and gaining these two other queens in my next episode, which I have entitled Bee Drama, how I lost one queen and gained two more. So if you've got through all of this information, I would just like to say thank you so much once again for joining me and letting me tell you about bees. I love to talk about bees. I would do it all day if I could. And it means so much to me that you are listening to my podcast. If you'd like to reach out to me for any reason, you can find me on Instagram at Homestead Hens and Honey. And I have a link to my blog there as well. You can also email me at homesteadhensandhoney at gmail.com and you can find me on Twitter at homesteadhens. Now, for this episode, I relied heavily on a really wonderful book that's called Becabulary Essentials by Andrew Connor that I do recommend picking up. It's wonderful. It has great photographs of the different um bees within a hive with really excellent information about their roles. And I'd also like to share with you a little bee fact um, that I found while doing some studying. And that is that ancient Greeks believed that a baby whose lips were touched by a bee would become a great poet or speaker, which I thought was lovely. So once again, thank you so much for listening. I will talk to you soon. And remember, hug your hens and then wash your hands. Bye-bye.